It's late spring in 1958. The place? A legendary French restaurant called Lutran Bleu in Paris, France. Salvador Dali has invited 20 noteworthy guests to join him at this lavish French brasserie. This is a yearly tradition he keeps before heading away for the summer to his home in Cadiz, Spain. Le Tran Bleu is a turn-of-the-century, five-star restaurant, originally built into the Gare de Lyon train station. Its golden decor and cavernous ceilings are decorated with lush landscape paintings and sculptural accents. The guests that Dali has invited here include Hollywood celebrities, such as the Academy Award-winning actors Kirk Douglas and Yul Brenner. Also in attendance is the wealthy British poet Sir Edward James, who was a prominent patron of surrealist artists at this time. But even more notably than that, there is royalty present. Prince Alessandro Ruspoli, the playboy aristocrat, notorious in the Italian tabloids for his hedonistic lifestyle. So much so that his public affairs soon inspire the film La Dolce Vita by Federico Fellini. Prince Ruspoli comes from one of the oldest family lines in Italy, a family tree which even includes a cardinal of the Roman Catholic Church. Mixed in among the guests are Dali's regular entourage, including his wife, Gala, his mistress, Amanda Lear, and an attractive young man named Carlos Lozano. Dali frequently requests the company of Amanda and Carlos for his spontaneous and irreverent pleasures, compensating them handsomely for their troubles. It's one of the strange perks of being the world's most famous and successful artist. But for us, the most notable guest in attendance whom Dali has invited is his friend and fellow artist, Leonor Fini. At this point in time, Fini is regarded with great respect in social circles of such high society as this. Her paintings are being exhibited alongside fellow surrealists. Her costume and set designs earn frequent praise from theatrical reviews and her name is known amongst the upper class of France and Italy as a master portrait artist. In fact, in 1944, she paints a striking portrait of the wife of one of the guests in attendance, Prince Alessandro Ruspoli. It's an inspired work titled Portrait of Princess Francesca Ruspoli. You can view it at the companion gallery for this episode at mjdorian.com forward slash fini. That's M-J-D-O-R-I-A-N dot com forward slash F-I-N-I. The link is also in the episode description. The portrait of Princess Francesca Ruspoli depicts a tall and distinguished woman with jet black hair in a long black dress with the body and sleeves seemingly made of black fur. Crimson, azure, and golden jewels decorate her chest. In her left hand, she holds a sharp dagger seemingly suspended from the princess's clasped hand at the base of its handle, as if it may drop from her grasp at any instant. The blade directs our gaze downward at a diagonal to the skirt of her dress, from under which a strange monster peeks out, lifting the dress on the left side of the painting with its claw arm extended, showing its bird-like face with a long tongue draping out of its open beak. At the bottom of the portrait, you can see these large, delicately rendered leaves and a tail emerging from the base of her skirt, apparently belonging to the monster, or perhaps to the princess. The atmosphere of the painting is one of dark magic. 
Finney later admitted that when Princess Francesca was sitting before her, posing for the painting, that Finney sensed a kind of darkness in her, which she felt compelled to capture in the portrait. An impression which was afterwards confirmed when Finney found out that the princess suffered from depression and substance abuse issues. The man now sitting before Finney at Dali's long dinner table was Princess Francesca's former husband, Prince Alessandro Ruspoli. Their marriage lasted only six years. That's all Princess Francesca could handle of Alessandro's hedonistic playboy lifestyle. The final straw came in 1954, just a few years before this dinner, when Alessandro was arrested for possession of two kilos of opium. That's four pounds in US measurements. They divorced in 1954, and then in 1962, Princess Francesca tragically took her own life at the age of 35 by leaping through her Milan apartment window. Unfortunately, not much is known about her life and struggles, aside from paparazzi photos and this portrait. There's no doubt that Italian nobility chose to suppress the story, much preferring to project the opulent public displays of the La Dolce Vita lifestyle than its dark underbelly. The portrait Finney painted now seems prophetic, only further imbuing her artistry with a certain mystique and power. Sitting across the table from Prince Ruspoli, Finney plays the perfect female counterpart to Dali. She is dressed in flowing sorcerer's robes, embroidered with magical symbols. Her face is painted a ghostly white. She looks like a character from Mozart's magic flute, ready to belt out an aria at any moment. Dali and his guests are carrying on a lively conversation. He calls this type of social engagement the game of snobs. His distinguished guests chime in with their most intellectual opinions on society and life. But of course, none can outdo Dali, who throws his voice often from the head of the table with accented rebuttals and asides. Dali looks to Kirk Douglas, who is sitting next to a mandolier, and proclaims, Prince Ruspoli has the biggest limousine in Europe. But Kirk's attention is on a mandolier. His hand is currently in her lap. He says to her, they tell me you're a painter. Dali interjects. She is a very bad painter. Women cannot paint. They cannot write. They cannot compose. They make embryos. To paint, you must have genius. Genius is only found in the balls. Amanda has lost them. He brings his hands together as if holding bricks. A voice from further down the table calls, What was that? Dali responds, All creativity is in the balls. He turns to Leonor Finney and says, Do women have balls? Finney responds by making the sign of the cross in the way you would to repel a vampire. He continues, Painting is about time, space, and balls. Am I right, Sir Edward? Before Edward could respond, Yule Brenner yells, You're right. The conversation then strays to the topic of personal grudges, where Kirk and Yule Brenner share their dislike of the actress Lauren Bacall. Dolly, feeling a need to assert his intellectual dominance, states, Those who make judgments are fleeing the present to reside in the past where the deed being judged was committed. <laughs>
They assess you for what you were then, not what you are now. For a moment, the guests mull it over. Then Leonor Finney opens her arms, spreading her flowing robe, and speaks. Genius in the balls is a judgment. She rises to her feet and proclaims, Genius is in the slit. The guests are silent. Yul Brenner's wife says, I agree. Dali swirls his soup with his fingertips and raises them up, twirling his pointed mustache, as if preparing his rebuttal. Mademoiselle Lafini is the most talented female painter in the world, but talent isn't genius. I know a man who makes clay pots in Paris. They are charming. He is a craftsman, not a genius. The abstract expressionists show us fields of meaningless color and say, this is art. It is not art. They are not artists. They are not craftsmen. They are businessmen contemplating suicide. Fini, now seated again, calls out, in the slit. Yul Brenner whispers to Carlos, who is that woman? Carlos responds, Leonor Finney. Finally, Finney flutters the wings of her cape like a magnificent bird, as if she is about to fly across the table and hisses, slit. I love this anecdote so much. It confirms so many things about Fini's status and the art community at this time, in the 1950s, and her commanding personality. Side note, this episode is part two of my Leonor Fini series. If you have not yet listened to part one, just pause this episode and scroll down in the podcast feed to episode 30, Leonor Fini, Mirrors of the Dark Sublime. It will help give you a much deeper appreciation for Finney's art and mind. In part one, we explore her early years, her childhood, and the first signs of her genius. Now, this account we started this episode with, which describes the distinguished dinner and a battle of wits between Dali and Finney, it comes from the memoirs of Carlos Lozano, which are in a book called Sex, Surrealism, Dali, and Me. Carlos was the attractive youth who was sitting at the table, whose company Dali frequently requested. And this story is also confirmed in the autobiography of Amanda Lear. It's interesting to note that both of these accounts are written by writers who want to support their claims as close acquaintances of Salvador Dali. So the description of Leonor Finney and her outburst is only mentioned matter-of-factly, in passing, and with no reason for exaggeration. It's in these little anecdotes told by colleagues and friends, that we perceive glimpses of Fini's personality and her theatricality. In every moment hides the opportunity for full creative expression. One of her favorite social events was the masquerade, a party in which guests are required to dress in costume. 
These were in vogue in Paris and Italy during the 1950s, and Finney would go out of her way to attend them, not so much to socialize, but rather to embrace the opportunity to be a new fantastical creature for an evening. She handmade all of her masks and costumes for such occasions, and her designs were so remarkable that she appeared on the covers of magazines, and celebrities would commission her to design their costumes. These designs were seen as artworks, leading to the publishing of a book called Masque de Leonore Fini, The Masks of Leonore Fini, in Paris in 1951. The book contains photographs of Fini in her many elaborate bird, cat, and hybrid feline costumes. But the most notable of all masquerades, and the most exclusive, was the one Leonore Fini would host herself, on the secluded island of Corsica, in the Mediterranean Sea, like many Parisians, such as Dali, Finney would spend summers outside of the city. She starts a special yearly tradition in 1954, renting out an abandoned monastery near the town of Nonza on the island of Corsica. She remains there all summer with her two lovers, Stanislaw Lepri and Konstantin Jelenski, the latter affectionately known as Kot, which is Polish for cat, both of whom she painted numerous portraits of. In 1993, Leonor Fini is interviewed on the French radio program Memoires du Siècle, Memories of the Century. She recounts her long career and the various artists she had close ties with throughout her 86 years. She also speaks about the places she has lived and the topic of the abandoned monastery of Corsica. She says, I lived for a long time in Corsica, and there we had a part of a monastery. The rest was all in ruins. It was very beautiful. And there, we used to make masks and costumes, and we would wear them during soirees, parties with countless lit candles, and everything would tremble. The trees and the walls and all the decorations, many of which still survived. The convent was founded by Saint Francis of Assisi. It was very old. The villagers wanted even more decorations. The church was not only Baroque, but Rococo, with plump Louis paintings, little angels' hands everywhere, flowers, garments, and the roof was destroyed. But in the middle of the church grew an enormous fig tree. It almost made a vault. It was a very beautiful place. And we lived happy days there. In the book Sphinx, the author Peter Webb, who interviewed Finney in her final years, gives us these details. That summer of 1954, she rented an old ruined Franciscan monastery near Nonza, on the northern tip of Corsica. She and her companions literally camped out in the ruins among the mice and the grass snakes, as there was only one room whose walls were standing, and the windows were without glass. The trip to Nonza took place every June. Leonor, Stanislaw, and Kot, with some of the cats in their baskets, would take taxis to the Gare de Lyon, and then first-class wagons, lit for the night journey to Marseillais. A suite would be reserved for them at the Hotel de Nouailles, on the Canabière, and they would settle in for the day, with the cats being allowed out of their baskets. Then they would board the overnight boat to Bastia, 
where two or three taxis would be waiting to take the travelers up into the mountains and then down to the other side to the sea. At the path leading to the monastery, the luggage would be transferred onto a donkey. Leonor's first priority was always a swim in the sea. Close friends would be invited during the three or four months spent there. Over the years, Leonor had parts of the monastery reconstructed, using the original stones, but never had either electricity or running water installed. And it was not until the late 1960s that there was a telephone line. From a natural underground spring in the hills, behind the convent, flowed a little stream that provided water for the kitchen and was channeled into a miniature waterfall at the back of the property that provided a natural shower in a chamber of stones surrounded by a garden. The monastery was not rich in creature comforts, but that did not worry Leonor. She liked the contrast with Paris, and she had fallen in love with the jagged coasts and wonderful views of the place. The hills were rocky and barren, but she had a magnificent garden planted on the terrace of the monastery in 1964 to add further color to the green veins of Amazonite in the rocks and the vivid blue of the sea. Leonor was probably happier here than anywhere else. Leonor would sometimes spend hours swimming in the sea, at times to the dismay of her invited friends. Suzanne Flon told Peter Webb, it was a wonderful poetic spot, isolated, far from the village, with no telephone or radio or television. I would fly out and take a taxi. Leonor always went by boat because of the cats. She insisted everyone should dress up for dinner, lovely food from the local market, and we would also dress up for photography sessions, which she loved. She would collect smooth pebbles from the seashore, which she painted in bright colors as presents for her guests. Unquote. Let's journey back to 1960 and visit the abandoned monastery on Corsica to celebrate the occasion of Leonor Fini's birthday. Chapter 5 The Dark Masquerade You stand on the shores of Corsica, a French island in the Mediterranean Sea, off the coast of Italy. The sun has set on the horizon. The night breeze on your skin is a salve to the day's summer heat. You've been invited here to celebrate Leonor Fini's birth. The invitation you carry in your hand, with its embossed red wax seal still clinging to one side, has led you to this spot. Before you is a long and slender pier on the rocky shore of the island. Gazing at the end of the pier, you see a hooded figure standing with a staff. With some hesitation, you take the first steps down the long and narrow pier, which is only illuminated by the moonlight. The night sky dances on the water around you. The hooded figure has not spoken or moved. You stand before him, or her, all you can make out are pale white lips protruding from the shadows. Your words stumble out. Uh, I'm here for Miss Finney's masquerade, gesturing the invitation in the air. The hooded figure nods and steps aside, extending their white hand to a rowboat directly beneath you. As you approach the edge of the pier, the figure presents their staff to steady you. You hold it for a moment as you step down into the wooden boat. 
It rocks under your weight as you sit down. Your guide follows, their cloak trailing on the pier behind them and into the rowboat. Grabbing the oars, already in the water, they push off from the pier and begin to row. The sea is almost black and all at once seems completely still. You move through it as if forcing your way through marble. Here in the water, the cold night air stings. A slight trepidation envelops you, but you remind yourself, you are here for Leonor Finney's birthday celebration. Every August, Finney hosts a masquerade at an abandoned monastery on this far-flung island. To Finney, art is not restricted within the frame. It spills out into all of life itself. You feel a strange inclination and follow it. As the boat glides, you run your fingertips on the water's surface, and then further to your knuckles, and further still to your forearm. You note the cool sensation climbing up your arm when something grabs your finger. It feels like someone else's hand. It climbs up into your palm. It can't be a fish, it can't be seaweed. It feels firm and aware. You pull your hand up just enough to see through the surface of the water. An octopus. Its tentacles cling around your wrist. And as if reading your mind just before you pull your arm up, it releases and disappears. You stare at your glistening hand. Your guide motions you to look to your right. There beside you is a lantern hung on a short pole. You look back at your guide, who says nothing. Peering inside the lantern, you see a box of matches. You open the little door and light the lantern. The warm, fiery glow is a floating miracle in this blackness. In the distance, you see another floating lantern come to life, and then another, and a third, other guests with other guides. Their brilliant shimmers refracting off of the waves. It isn't clear how much time has passed. Two minutes, 20 minutes, but you now see the silhouette of the island before you, and the monastery triumphing over the rocky shore. Through gaps in the stone walls, you see the faint flickering of life. Your guide stops rowing. Planting their staff on a rock, they rise, and motion for you to grab the lantern on your way. You steady yourself on your guide's arm and step off, lantern in hand, to undo the darkness under your feet that blankets these rocks. They are slippery and covered in seaweed. A treacherous walk as the Mediterranean sea waves lap at your heels. Finally, you make it. A set of stone stairs ascend from the shore up the hill. Torches gently burn along the path from tall spikes in the ground. Corsica. This is the island where the great Napoleon Bonaparte was born. On these ancient stones, you may be walking in his footsteps. You make it to the top of the steps, where a dry dirt path leads to the entrance of the abandoned monastery. Finally, the sound of voices in the distance, revelers from the masquerade already underway. The path is decorated with garlands and statuettes, sphinx figures and Roman candles. The immense wooden doors to the monastery are intricately carved with fleur-de-lis patterns and metal ornaments. You pull on the large ring handle and the door draws open. 
aroma of sweet incense, tobacco, and rose perfume wafts over you. You see groups of people in ornate costumes, laughing, talking, dancing. Flowing skirts, lace fringes, trailing brocades, wigs of all styles. You see men in Victorian suits, horns, and masquerade masks, all with the most exquisite ornaments. Flower petals and gold confetti litter the old mosaic tiles beneath you. The entire space vibrates and shimmers from hundreds of candles placed throughout the walls and entryways. The Doric columns, wrapped in climbing ivy, reach up to touch the night sky. A stunning visual. The ceiling and roof of the monastery collapsed long ago. The space is open to the elements, save for the skeletal supports of some of the vaulted ceilings, giving the impression of ribs to this ancient structure. As you walk along the wall, you see entryways to other rooms where more people are drinking wine, eating, dancing. Occasionally you spy two or more together in the shadows, embracing. In the next room, you see an ancient altar, its base painted with bas-reliefs of faded religious scenes, its top covered with baskets of overflowing fruits and freshly baked breads. You see one wall, entirely made of bones, illuminated by candles which seal the forms in melted wax. The bones seem to dance with the candlelight. You see a woman, blindfolded, being led around by her hand in some parlor game. The man leading her looks familiar, like the artist, Max Ernst. It must be. He's close friends with Fini. And the blindfolded woman is Leonora Carrington. Ernst brings her to a circle of other guests. Each one holds something to touch or smell, and she must guess the object. The first guest holds a sprig of lavender, which he hovers before Carrington's nose. You notice his face is painted, but he isn't wearing a mask. He has this distinctive pointed mustache. It can only be one man, of course, Salvador Dali. He smiles and, with a cupped hand, whispers something in her ear as she is led to the next trial. Just then, something brushes against your leg. Could it be a rat? You look with quick impulse and see a large and fluffy Maine Coon. His white fur glows as he weaves through your calves. This must be one of Leonore's dozen cats. You are now halfway down the enormous main hall when something extraordinary catches your eye. Could it be a tree? Right in the center of the cavernous hall. It is. An enormous fig tree has grown through the old tiled floor, stretching its way toward the stars. Under its canopy is another ancient altar, surrounded by cats and more baskets of fruit, stuffed breads, and jugs of wine. You pause for a moment to take it all in. And then you hear an awful crash. It startles you. The guests begin to move in unison, migrating in from the neighboring rooms to the main hall, glasses in hand. You see a violinist. She is long and slender, her arms moving like spider legs bowing the violin. Her playing seems to signal the start of some ceremony. Her shoulders are decorated with large black feathers that sway to the melody. Everyone directs their attention 
to the side of the hall with the fig tree. The crowd gasps. Something is happening. You clamor for a better view, peeking over shoulders, going around columns, when finally you see it. A figure has entered the space through an archway. It, it must be Leonor. She appears as a chimera-like monster, half bird, half feline, terrifying and beautiful. Her dress is composed of thousands of multicolored feathers, through which you can see her naked body underneath. She doesn't walk. She appears to glide across the floor with her wings outstretched, swaying and spinning to the music. In brief instances, her movements reveal her breasts and veil them again. Her face is obscured by an owl mask. White and speckled brown feathers frame her piercing eyes. Without warning, eruptions in the sky above. The space illuminates in bursts of the brightest blues, flaming yellows, and rosy reds. It is the celebration of Leonor Finney's birth. And like the guests present, you hope this night will never end. Chapter 6, The Sphinx in Her Tower We began this episode with an anecdote which painted a portrait for us of Finney's personality and her status in the art world. In the next chapter, we explored an imaginative interpretation of the spirit of Finney's aesthetic world and the manner in which it came to life each summer at the abandoned monastery in Corsica. The most exclusive of all soirees were held there, and if you were invited, it meant you were part of Finney's inner circle. It's now time to dive back into Finney's most substantial and lasting works, her oil paintings. In the last episode, we focused on her early to mid-career artworks. Pieces like Temptation, From One Day to Another, Chthonian deity watching over the sleep of a young man, and ends of the earth. Let us now turn our attention to her mid to late career artworks. Let's begin our exploration with a quote from Finney from 1975. Concerning her passion for painting, she writes, I wish the images that I create 
to be the closest to themselves. I want them painted as well as possible. I mean, at the sharpest point of contact between what wishes to be expressed via me and the way to do it. It is only in this way that the act of painting can please me, give me pleasure, concentration, intensity, attention close to happiness, as swimming, dancing, or singing are for others. That is why I don't believe in the death of painting. I believe it to be an activity linked to ancient sources, which go back to gardener birds, to the courtship rituals of animals, which have been handed down to us through the discovery of play and magic by the first men. It may take millennia for this instinct to disappear, for these fins or paws to fall away completely, and for others to form in their place." Unquote. In the late 1960s, Finney's paintings take on a new style, one which is vibrant with warm colors and pastel tones not seen in her earlier work. The female figures are often a pale shade of white, and their decorative dresses, fabrics, and hats feature impressions of patterns and textures. In a very real way, this vibrant style opens the opportunity for more commercial work for Finney. And around this time, her paintings even begin selling very successfully as posters, such as the paintings Vesper Express and Heliodora, both of which became synonymous with the popular art posters of the 1960s. But this newfound commercial success doesn't cause Finney to do away with her tendency toward dark subject matter. Instead, she does something brilliant and bizarre. She fuses these warm color palettes with strikingly dark scenarios. In the late 1960s, she works on a series of paintings which explore this new aesthetic terrain. One of the masterpieces of this time period is the painting La Leçon d'Anatomie, The Anatomy Lesson. I've gone through great lengths to find and compile the highest quality photographs of Leonor Finney's paintings I could find. I've essentially put together the best gallery of Finney's work that exists online. You can view the paintings we cover in this episode, including The Anatomy Lesson, as well as dozens of others at mjdorian.com forward slash Finney. That's mjdorian.com forward slash F-I-N-I. The link is also in the episode description. Again, on that page, I've compiled the best gallery of Leonor Finney's work, which exists online. The anatomy lesson depicts a bizarre scene. Five young girls gather around the corpse of a dead and decaying man. The man is a perplexingly deep azure hue, and he's in the foreground on what might be a coroner's table. The girls range in age from seven to 15. They stand before this corpse, facing it directly and in three-quarter views. Their dresses are rich with geometric patterns, soft purple and orange tones, which have this violent contrast to the heavy blue of the body before them. The strangeness of the scene is heightened as you explore the reactions of the girls. The three girls on the right stare at the body with downward cast eyes, with a kind of curious indifference. Their level faces and nearly closed eyelids give a demure quality to their expression. 
your mind struggles to interpret their emotion. The girl on the far left, with bright pink flowers on her white hat, has her eyes covered by the rim of her hat, relaying a kind of indifference to the body. It's the youngest girl, the one near the center and closest to the body, who gives us the most expression. Her hand covers the right side of her face, either in shock or to shield her view. The hand closes her right eye, but her gaze is uninterrupted as her left eye continues to stare at the legs of the figure. You can see her legs from under the table, in mid-movement, and her upper body bends backward from the hips, as if recoiling. The little girl's face wears a grimace that reminds me of sculptures of ancient gods with their terrifying downward-turned mouths. And perhaps most strangely, the little girl's grimace echoes the one on the face of the dead man. What is Fini expressing here? The painting's name gives us further clues. La Luzon d'Anatomie, the anatomy lesson. The name deliberately pays homage to a dark subject represented in Baroque and Renaissance paintings, the morgue scene. Take, for example, one of Rembrandt's masterpieces, called The Anatomy Lesson of Dr. Nicholas Tulp, painted in 1932, which depicts a medical school dissection of a cadaver. And then there's also a curious echo of a notorious painting of Jesus by the German-Swiss painter Hans Holbein the Younger from 1520. The emaciated body of Jesus Christ in his tomb looks remarkably similar to the azure blue body before the five girls in Finney's The Anatomy Lesson, from the position of the hand, slightly draping off the table, to the detailed rendering of the toes. There is no doubt that Finney, who thoroughly educated herself on the works of all the great masters, knew of both of these paintings. And here, in her own work, she proceeds to subvert them by placing the solidity of death in this violent contrast to the supposed innocence of feminine youth. Yet again, we should note that except for the grimacing child, the older girls seem unfazed. Viewing the anatomy lesson in the context of her late 60s work, we see that this painting is part of a series. It is a series in which Finney explores the relationship between masculinity and femininity, often depicting an alternate world where dominant nude women are juxtaposed against distorted masculine figures. A remark you'll often hear in Finney circles is that her artwork portrays women as subjects with desire, as opposed to objects of desire. In this late 1960s series, Finney depicts scenes where the male figures are grotesque, as in the acupuncture lesson from 1972, or dismembered into pieces and shoved in a witch's brew, as in The Strangers from 1968, where you see the nude women peering into the cauldron curiously. This context gives us another interesting interpretation of the anatomy lesson, which we've been exploring. Knowing that Finney was exploring the relationship between femininity and masculinity at this time, we can see the young girls standing before the male corpse in a new light. They seem to be facing the symbolic death 
of the masculine, an end which most of them seem to look down on with indifference or mild curiosity, and only the youngest is horrified. In the radio program, Memories of the Century, Finney spoke about some of the discrimination she faced as a young female artist in Italy. She says, When I was 18 or 19, I hung around with the painters of the Novicento movement, who were good painters, Cironi, Funi, Cara, but I didn't feel comfortable with them, because Italian men, in general, are quite anti-woman. I understand being anti-feminist, but not anti-woman. Once, I witnessed a scene I didn't like at all. A young lady came to deliver paper, and her nails were lacquered. And Cara, the painter, said, That's why I don't think a woman can be an artist. Clearly, he was wrong, even though his paintings were quite beautiful. At some point, he was influenced by de Carico, but he was such a putrid bourgeois, he almost equated painted nails with prostitution. I didn't feel at ease, but of course, as I was young and pretty, they wanted me to stay. But I didn't want to, and I left for Paris. There is one more angle to understand this painting from. It is a hidden aspect which makes the scene personal to Fini. When she was roughly the age of the little girl in the painting, Fini and a friend visited the morgue in her hometown of Trieste. She recounts that experience, saying, An old man pushed us toward a door, half covered with ivy, that we had not noticed before. He turned on the light, and in a room with black walls, we saw a beautiful young man, stretched out on a sequined table, surrounded by fresh roses, lilies, and orchids. Other flowers were scattered on the motionless body, whose eyes were closed. He was a gypsy, said the old man. I have shown him to you because he is beautiful, and children should see what is beautiful. It was the first time I had seen a naked man. Finney describes the scene further, in another interview, there was a very beautiful gypsy youth who had died in an accident. The gypsies had invaded the morgue, howling, singing, and even dancing. They covered the young body with multicolored shawls. The women took off their necklaces, laid them on him, and then picked them up again." Unquote. Fini would visit the morgue numerous times throughout her youth, saying, the dead bodies were beautifully dressed and surrounded by sumptuous flowers, with their heads resting on embroidered cushions, the women with their hair spread out. There was a surprising quantity of very small children with blood-filled nostrils, a brilliant red on the very distinctive white-blue of their skin. Suicides and accident victims were brought there too. A manservant with a pale face and mouth beard, wearing shiny, and lovingly laced boots." Unquote. In taking the time to study great works by creative geniuses such as Leonor Finney, we learn so much about the inner workings of creativity. As in this example, a great work 
is not created from one motivation or one influence alone, but in fact, it blossoms forth out of a confluence of factors. Here, in the painting, The Anatomy Lesson, we see the depth of various influences that inform Feeney's hand, historical, philosophical, and personal. If she had simply led with the personal and tried to represent a scene from her childhood which she remembered vividly, it would have still made for a compelling work. But notice that her creative spirit twists it for another purpose. This is what the creative process does, especially when it is allowed to function organically and the artist has an intuitive relationship with their creative process. There is an exciting sense of discovery when these factors overlap and a feeling that the work you are creating is consequential in some way that not only is it personally meaningful, but also meaningful for society to witness. These multiple influences merge into something unique which has never existed before. And in that process, we find the stuff of life transformed in a process of sublimation. We've now passed the halfway point of the episode. It's time for a brief intermission. If you're enjoying this deep dive into the strange and beautiful world of Leonor Fini and would like to buy me a coffee or 10, now you can easily do so on Venmo. Just open up the search bar and type at Creative Codex. That's C-R-E-A-T-I-V-E. C-O-D-E-X, one word, and it should show up under businesses. This show basically runs on Arabica beans. Anytime I'm sitting down to record or write the next episode, I am joined by my cup of coffee. But any donations also go toward the music production for each episode. For example, the beautiful violin playing you heard in the sonic simulation segment of Finney's Monastery was by the violinist Emily Simone, who you also heard in part one of this series. She is playing a violin piece I wrote just for that scene. I felt it was integral to conveying the image of Leonor in her elaborate costume, waltzing through the candlelit hall, beneath the stars and fireworks. And thanks to listener support, I was able to properly hire Emily Simone for that incredible performance. Now, no pressure to send anything. Your listening and sharing is really more important than anything. But if you'd like to help support Creative Codex, that Venmo account is at Creative Codex. That's one word. At this point of the episode, in most podcasts, you'd hear some random advertisement about dog insurance, overpriced NFTs, or CBD foot cream. But not on Creative Codex. Instead, I'm going to play you a preview of an episode exclusive from my Patreon. This one is a full dramatic reading of one of Leonor Finney's novellas called Rogomelic. It's particularly relevant here because the setting of the story is an ancient monastery on a distant island. Ring any bells? Finney's time spent living at Corsica inspired her to write a novella. It's a mind-bending story about a strange monastery whose resident monks practice ancient methods of healing, capable of curing all illnesses and ailments. The story is told from the perspective of someone venturing to the island for this purpose. 
I never intended to record audiobooks, but this story by Finney was too good to pass up, and really further illustrates the rich inner world from which her artwork blossoms forth. You can listen to the full version, which is over an hour long, at my Patreon, at patreon.com forward slash mjdorian. That's M-J-D-O-R-I-A-N. And it's available at any tier level. Here's a clip from my reading of Rogomelek by Leonor Finney. We passed under the cool spring before returning for lunch. We were not to speak at the table and to drink in silence, occasionally in very small sips. I could hear distant sounds, somewhat mournful, and the two monks murmuring, I am the night angel, I am the black angel. Zanea rose from the table and proposed that we go to a concert that evening. It was to take place at the ossuary. I told her that I would come. In the afternoon, I could do nothing but sleep. It's the treatment that's good, the monk Talo told me as he accompanied me to my cell. She was waiting for me, leaning against the wall of the church, blending in with the tamed stone that seemed to want to become wild again. She led me under thick foliage that darkened the sky. Go in, she said. The ossuary was a square room, not very large. The vault was missing. Three and a half walls enclosed this space, in which weeds and dwarf bushes were growing. I could not imagine an orchestra there, or what the acoustics could be like. There were still fragments of arabesques high up on the walls, but the walls were corroded and cracked, the thick layer of plaster mostly broken off. Then we saw gathered and held by a golden metal net a multitude of bones, through which tardy green and black lizards stealthily made their way. Less than half of the fourth wall remained. Zanea gestured for silence. She pointed to a stone for me to sit on. I wanted to talk to her, but she grew cold. Quiet, she said. It's starting. I heard nothing, not the slightest sound, but I could feel vibrations in my body, a slow tingling in my arms, legs, shoulders, everywhere. I wanted to lie down. Zania lay near me. The rest of my body heard before my ears did. Little by little, brief sounds, a jingling, the sounds of tiny bells reached my delighted ears, then the very distant notes of a glass harmonica, a harpsichord, and even drums, guttural sounds, dissonances. I was also getting used to the fading light, to those pale reflections that seemed to come from the sea. We had an overview from on high. I stared at the three walls and I saw, or thought I saw, all the bones beginning to move slowly. I saw the iliac bones bunched all together, throbbing, creating strange shapes of crowns or fans. I saw the tibias rise like piano keys, sometimes playing in groups. I saw the femurs turning round and round, and other bones, clavicles, greater trochanters, vertebrae, spherical clock-like motions abruptly stopping from time to time. The music grew more and more intense, audible with broad harmonies. Certain notes were coming from a part of the wall where the bones were half hidden by creeping lichens. Then the music grew passionate, suddenly full of sweet modulations, interrupted in an unusual rhythm by harsh dissonances with difficult accents. 
the dry vibrations, the haunting drumbeats, made me feel strangely ecstatic. Names of ancient instruments came to mind. Archicembalo, viela, bagpipes, chorliza, sambuca, timpanon. Zania came and whispered in my ear, Did you recognize Alombra degli Alori? No, I didn't recognize it. And the music drifted into voluptuous and melancholy melodies. I looked at Zania. At that exact moment, a voice nearby spoke her name. She immediately got up and said rapturously, Admata, come. On the crest of a section of wall appeared a tall and delicate silhouette. When Zania reached out to her, she made a graceful leap. The gentle rustling of her skirts, layered like flower petals, brushed against dead branches that cracked softly. The music slowed and was almost inaudible in its softness. All I could hear was the shrill sound of a rattle and that of an opening and closing hinge. The woman held Zania close to her, clasping her delicately round, nearly naked body, which sank into the intricate folds of the scented, diaphanous, rich fabrics. Admata wore a small top hat, soft, slightly tilted, with a veil of silver tull to which pale gray and mauve leaves were attached at its ends. That was a clip from my reading of Leonor Finney's novella, Rogomelek. The full version is over an hour long and is available as an episode exclusive on my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash mjdorian. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash m-j-d-o-r-i-a-n. Thank you in advance for your support. Without further ado, back to Codex 31. Leonor Finney, The Dark Masquerade. Let's now turn our attention to one more Finney painting. This one is called L'Escalier dans la Tour, The Staircase in the Tower. Despite its unassuming name and the seemingly straightforward subject matter, I consider this painting as one of Leonor Finney's masterpieces. Side note, you can view the staircase in the tower, along with dozens of other Feeny paintings, at the companion gallery I've put together for this episode. Just head over to mjdorian.com forward slash Feeny. That's F-I-N-I. And click the thumbnail for this episode. I can confidently say that this is the best gallery of Feeny's paintings available online. And I've gone through painstaking lengths to collect these artworks in their best resolution. The link for the gallery is also in the episode description. L'Escalier dans la Tour, or The Staircase in the Tower, is a painting Fini finishes in 1952. As such, it is a work from her mid-career artworks, and it is one of my personal favorite Fini paintings. In The Staircase in the Tower, we see the depiction of an interior space, an arched doorway of some ancient structure through which is seen a spiral stairwell. 
the type of stairwell which often exists in old castles and monasteries. The brown, yellow, and gray colors and solid textures give one the impression that the stairs and the walls are made of stone. But on closer inspection, you can see cracks in the surfaces and the archway, revealing a darker underlayer, implying that the top layer is a plaster, which is being chipped away by the passage of time. It reminds one of the diptych we studied in the last episode, called From One Day to Another, which Finney completed in 1938, and which also displays arches in disrepair. staircase in the tower, Fini has achieved something truly magnificent. The subtle details make the painting look photorealistic, and you can imagine her toiling away with the greatest intention to represent one of her favorite things, derelict and decaying architecture, the kind she so often enjoyed in those summers at the monastery of Corsica, and which feature heavily in her novella Rogomelic. Every inch of the painting is executed with the greatest care. Even the tiles on the floor have hints of decorative leaf patterns and cracks. On first glancing at this masterpiece, your eyes explore the scene for any signs of life. A form on the top right grabs your attention. It is a hanging rooster, suspended upside down by a cord tied to his foot. His head points straight downward, his white wings are outstretched, and his other leg seems to hang naturally in midair. He's dead. Or if he's not dead, he soon will be. A chicken can only hang upside down for a few minutes before asphyxiating. The weight of their organs put pressure on their lungs. From the suspended rooster, one can feel an imaginary line of gravity pulling him down. A vertical line which runs evenly between the two strong parallel lines of the archway and the center post of the stairwell. This implied effect of gravity leads our eyes straight down the stairs to the warm light of a distant doorway. It's a perplexing juxtaposition, like a visual riddle. Why does the rooster hang? Who killed him? Is it some ritual or sacrifice? It calls to mind the practices of African folk magic traditions like Santeria. There is a detail of this painting which I completely missed the first three times I viewed it. It is hidden in plain sight. Staring long enough, your eyes will eventually notice it too as they follow the steps upward from the doorway. On each one of the stone steps is a broken eggshell. The eggshells only begin from the first step closest to us, the step which is level with the floor and the one which is illuminated by a shaft of natural sunlight that seems to stretch across the stairs from another entryway, seemingly behind us and to the right. If you look closely, you'll notice that each one of the eggshells is rendered in the most delicate detail. They look completely convincing. The subtle gradations of tone make them photorealistic. And once they catch your eye, their echoing quality leads your gaze upward following the steps. Seven steps in total, 
each with its own distinct broken eggshell. So, what is going on here? Finney obviously went through great lengths to perfect every inch of this painting. It is a masterpiece that can stand alongside those of the Renaissance, from the subtle impression of texture on the tiles, which are in shadow on the bottom right, to the delicate feathers on the rooster's tail, whose edges glow with the light. What is Fini trying to say? The staircase in the tower depicts a scene where the main character of the painting is absent. Instead, her proximity to the scene is implied. It gives the impression one has stumbled into a private domain whose occupant is somewhere nearby. It's an unresolved feeling. If we were to follow those eggshells up the stairs and reach the top of the tower, we will find a sphinx in her den. That mysterious creature, which, as we learned in part one, Finney feels a close affinity with. It's an affinity which started when she was a young girl, when she would enjoy sitting on a large sphinx statue in front of Miramar Castle in her hometown of Trieste. When asked about this painting by the author, Peter Webb, Finney told him, It is a very cruel, wicked picture, with a cock who has been killed and some eggs which have been eaten. But lovely colors. I can be cruel at times. Unquote. At this point in her work, in the early 50s, the Sphinx begins to play an increasingly symbolic role. Its presence is less overt than the voluptuous Sphinxes of her paintings in the 1940s. Take, for example, two other paintings from this period, Sphinx Regina and Little Hermit Sphinx. In Sphinx Regina from 1948, we see one of the most unsettling still-life paintings I've ever seen. At first glance, it is a scene of flawlessly rendered vegetation in a darkly lit forest with plants stretching their way upward out of the dirt and beautiful greenish-blue cabbage leaves on the right-hand side, their veins extending like lightning. Near the cabbage leaves, on the right, there's something like a black rhizome. Its skin glistens like a snail shell, and its form violates our expectations, resembling something one would find miles under the earth. But the object which immediately draws our attention is in the foreground, some unnameable form that resembles a tree root emerging from the earth. But it contains a startling yellow eye which peers back at you. It is an eye which is remarkably similar to the eyes featured in another painting from that same year, which we covered in the last episode, and which is the cover art for that episode, The Ends of the Earth. Upon noticing the eye in Sphinx Regina, your mind adjusts its perception to assume this form is not a tree root, but an animal skull. Okay, but look again. As you examine the middle area, you see something that looks distinctly like rotting wood. And so it becomes a tree root again. But go only a few inches lower, to the right, and you see long strands of fur. What the hell is it? We are back to square one, staring at the startling yellow eye watching us. Our mind has made the attempt to understand what we are seeing, and failed. Finney has presented our mind with something we cannot comprehend. She names the painting Sphinx Regina. In her mind, the Sphinx is taking on an increasingly symbolic form.
There's a related painting from this time period, during which Finney is in her 40s. It is Little Hermit Sphinx, painted in 1948. I see this one as a companion piece to The Staircase in the Tower, the one with the hanging rooster which we explored. Like The Staircase in the Tower, Little Hermit Sphinx also depicts a scene with a dilapidated doorway. It appears to be a view from an exterior of a home. The slender, rectangular doorway frames a scene for us. Plants and a dirt path are in the foreground, and ivy climbs the peeling paint on the exterior walls. At the doorstep is a figure, dark and unassuming. It looks like a person laying down, but upon closer inspection, it is one of Feeney's famous sphinxes, except this time, a few key details are different. First, her head seems to be shaved. Gone are the flowing, voluminous locks of hair we see in all of her other sphinx paintings. On her scalp appear the leaves of some ivy or plant. Her expression is demure, with downcast eyes, either thoughtful or solemn. Another key difference from earlier sphinxes is that she is clothed in a black tunic or a velvety dress with a cape over her shoulders. The only other skin showing, aside from her head, is the slight triangle of skin reflecting from her breasts. Gone is the dominant, sensual power of her earlier sphinxes. Here she is reserved, perhaps even in mourning. But from what? From the base of her dress protrudes a large feline paw, which seems to be extending toward a small raven's skull which lies before her. A subtle visual echo of the raven's skull in the painting Ends of the Earth. And then, two other objects add new folds to the mystery before us. Directly beneath this demure sphinx is a broken eggshell, perfectly rendered and emptied of its contents. And directly above her is something suspended from the doorframe on a string. It is the deep red color of an organ. There appear to be cuts or incisions that split it. The string is tied to a severed tube. Is it a plaything of the Sphinx or something else? In trying to find answers to such questions, we inevitably must turn to Finney's personal life, a life which she notoriously kept private. But there are hints here and there. The writer, Charles Henry Ford, who was friends with Finney, wrote this in his diary. The other night at dinner, Leonore began to tell about her pregnancy at Beausoleil. She said she was frantic to get rid of the embryo, which was fathered by Stanislaw. Although André de Mandiargues was also around during that time, she called on a Javanese doctor, who was there at the time, to bring about an abortion. The doctor pleaded with her to have the child because he had an intuition that one of his own dead children would be reborn in it. He said his children's voices came to him, wanting to be born again. Leonor said the only time in her life when she felt she wanted to commit suicide was at this time, at the prospect that she might have a child." Unquote. In the book, Sphinx, The Life and Art of Leonor Finney, the author, Peter Webb, states this. In January 1947, she had begun to experience stomach problems, which her doctor said were caused by constipation. By June, she was much worse and entered a clinic in the Paris suburb of Neuilly for an exploratory operation. 
during which the problem was found to be more serious. She wrote furious letters to her doctor, attacking him for his stupidity, and he tried to excuse his mistake. She was given medication and left Paris with Sforzino in July to recuperate in Le Brusque. But she was taken ill again and underwent urine tests, which resulted in her being sent, accompanied by Sforzino, to the Clinique Beaulieu in Geneva at the beginning of September. Further tests uncovered a tumor that was affecting her rectum and bladder. On September 9th, she had a serious operation on her uterus and bladder that included a hysterectomy. While recovering, she received anxious letters from Malvinia, who wanted to join her immediately, Federico, who also wanted to visit her, Renato Wilde, who insisted on paying all her medical expenses, and Merit Oppenheim, who asked her to continue her convalescence at her house nearby in Basel. Leonor returned to Paris in early October. On October 24th, Oppenheim wrote to her, expressing relief that she was making such a good recovery. At the beginning of 1948, while still recuperating from her operation, Leonor completed her last Sphinx painting, Petite Sphinx Hermite, Little Hermit Sphinx. During this period, she felt rather like a hermit, and the painting reflects her state of mind. She told the author later, I was glad to have that operation. The thought of having children horrified me. Women marry because of fear of a lack of money, but I have always earned a living. If I had had a child, he would have devoured me. I would not have been able to create anything. I am too emotional. Last week, one of my cats had to have an operation. I was in a state of anxiety all week. So, with a child, I would have had a diabolical life." Unquote. Because of the operation in early 1948 to remove a tumor near her bladder and uterus, she was no longer able to become pregnant. Peter Webb mentions that in the aftermath, she became like a hermit for that year. No doubt it was a period of both recovery and deep self-reflection. It was in the mire of all of those circumstances that Feeney conceived this painting, Little Hermit Sphinx, that same year. The childlike sphinx, the hanging organ, the broken and emptied eggshell, it's all deeply personal and symbolic. Peter Webb asked her about the symbolism of the broken eggshells. Feeney responded, They represent destruction. It was no longer possible for me to have children. Therefore, I thought the eggs contained children." Unquote. Four years later, in 1952, she painted the empty eggshells on the stone steps of the tower in the painting, The Staircase in the Tower. This new symbol, the broken eggshell, which appeared shortly after the surgery that made her incapable of having a child, was now a personal symbol, which remained in her mind, consistently paired with the Sphinx. Chapter 7, Page After Page. Over the course of these two episodes, we've learned a lot about Leonor Finney's artwork and her life, and much of it has been sourced from the few available books about her, mainly the biography about her by Peter Webb, which is the only English biography about her life, and of course, it is currently out of print and has been for years. But there are things about Finney which we cannot learn from books alone, such as the role she plays in the hearts and minds of Finney fanatics, 
as well as people who stumble onto her work and share her with others, and the importance she holds for people who are champions of her work today. In the 21st century, on September 28th, 2018, the first ever Leonor Fini retrospective on U.S. soil was held at the Museum of Sex. By all accounts, including critic reviews, it was a spectacular show, which required the coordination of several private collections and museums. It ran from September 2018 to March 2019. This impressive and once-in-a-lifetime exhibition was curated by Lissa Rivera, who had already been working as the curator for the Museum of Sex for two years. And it's important to note that Lissa is herself an artist, working in the medium of photography. I'll link her site and social media in the episode description. As I was working on these two Leonor Finney episodes, I knew I just had to speak with Lissa in some fashion. I knew there were stories to be told about the exhibit, and I wanted to hear about her own thoughts about Finney, especially her notable omission from Western art history of the 20th century. I had the honor and pleasure of speaking with Lissa Rivera over the phone, and I'd like to share with you some of our conversation here. Yes, hello? Hi, it's Lissa. Hey, Lissa. Good evening. Good evening. It's great to be finally speaking with you. Yeah, good evening. Thanks for jumping on a call late. After some brief small talk, where we shared our enthusiasm about Leonor Finney's artwork, I asked Lissa this question. Finney had over 350 gallery exhibitions of her work during her lifetime. In your opinion, why is she not more well-known? And do you get the impression that people are only now, in the 21st century, starting to appreciate her? I mean, yeah, it's not to say that she didn't have solo museum shows, just mm -hmm. it was 2018, and at the Museum of Sex that she had the first solo museum show in the United States. Wow. And, you know, it's hard. Like, if you look at an early New York Times review of when she was at the Fantastic Art and Surrealism show at MoMA in 1936. Right. Data and Surrealism. They didn't take her seriously mm. because, you know, sexuality was a major driving force of her creativity. And her work always did, like, touch on the erotic and gender and desire. Mm. And to the New York Times, like, in 1936, they just kind of objectified her and didn't take her seriously. Mm. So maybe there's something about maybe like a new kind of sex positive movement that's happening in the United States. But isn't it flippant about women who are openly sexual? Um, right. There's a certain streak in, in the United States for sure. And like this kind of tendency, I think, to put down a woman as like using her wiles and not her professionalism to gain attention or something instead of seeing like, the real power of the statement that's being made. A little background. The exhibition, which Lissa Rivera curated, was called Leonor Finney, Theater of Desire. It was held at the Museum of Sex in New York City. The Museum of Sex is a unique museum for many reasons, one being that they were denied a nonprofit status because of the subject matter they explore, which has its pros and cons. On the plus side, they have a less strict code of operation than something like the Metropolitan Museum of Art. But on the negative side, funding for exhibitions can be a little harder to come by. The primary focus of the art featured at the museum is art which explores sexuality, eroticism, and gender. 
What I wanted to know from Lissa was, how did it come to pass that a sex-centric museum, which before Lissa's tenure primarily featured photography, why did they agree to host the most important Leonor Fini exhibition in New York City in decades? In terms of Leonor Fini, you know, and the shows I've done there, it's just like very passionate pitching, just being like, you don't understand, this person speaks to this moment right now. So... Mm that there is no better time to right. do and it's going to be important. I just know it. I just right. knew it. I was, like, fervent about it. <laughs> like, I was like, a lot of this stuff is in this country. I just felt like this is what I just need to do. Like, I have no choice. Like, I'm totally driven. Right. Like, I, I was possessed or something. <laughs> to get it done. Our conversation then took a few wonderful side journeys. For a time, we spoke about Finney's prolific career and the fact she was paid well for her artwork, costumes, and stage designs. That she wasn't a hermit working without public support. It was quite the opposite. Lissa offered this perspective. Yeah, you know, she had a lot of, like, cute guys to support and... <laughs> <laughs> and cats. That, and she was the, you know, she was the powerful, successful one within her household. I mean, Stanislaw Lepre and Cott, they were, you know, very successful in their own rights. But she was, you know, the powerful force within the community that she created and the people that she surrounded herself with, which is really unusual and such right. a great example. It's a hard thing to pull off even now. Right. In regards to the exhibition paintings themselves, so where are all these paintings of hers? I mean, unfortunately, we know there's no Leonor Finney Museum. So are these largely in private collections? I mean, what was your experience with that? Yeah, so they're largely in private collections. And there's one at the Tate. There's one at the Guggenheim Museum in Venice and Peggy Guggenheim's house. Mm. Um, one from Switzerland and you know for the most part there's some minor works in museums in the United States I'm not sure if that has changed mm -hmm. but primarily I borrowed from an American collector named Roland Weinstein who has a gallery in on the west coast mm -hmm. and also Gallery Minsky and then CFM Gallery and you know oh, right. Yeah, recently passed away a few months ago, sadly. Um, there's a yeah. book about him that's quite beautiful. I participated in um, in the Times. And between them, they're kind of like the three main people. And Richard mm. Over is, you know, the head of the estate and was her former partner and an artist himself. And um, he had worked in film. So he's in Paris. He lent me the costumes and mm. helped me. She had kept, you know, photo albums and he allowed me to reproduce images from the photo album in a slideshow. And oh, wow. It was paired with quotes and they were like never before published private photos. And he wow. also lent me, um, he had some capes from late in her life that she had um, custom made. So he lent me some of those, you know, like her early costumes aren't around anymore, unfortunately, the ones with the feathers and the kind of complicated ones. But we had a really yeah. glamorous, like really amazing. They're beautiful. Yeah, that we're able to show. 
And between those three main collectors, we did get some loans from clients of theirs. And I think that as a result of the show, post-exhibition, her auction value has definitely gone up quite a bit. You know, she pops up a lot more often, which is good to hear. I feel like there's a bit of a renewed interest. And one thing I encountered a lot during the show were people who were in academia letting me know that they're going to start teaching her. Mm, right. It always starts there. It starts within schools. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I then asked, Do you think it was something in her work, or even something about her personality, that made her pushed aside or marginalized by the art industry of the 1900s? You know, she had a big personality. You know, like, if someone misinterpreted her work, she would say something. Like, she was a powerful being, and her work is just kind of confrontational. Like, if you look at, you know, Shackles from 1984... There's, like, two women in the back with, you know, shackles around their necks, and they're wearing these robes. And then there's this woman at the front, like, confidently spreading her legs with Mm -hmm. a fire red bush. And, Mm -hmm. you know, like, just being, like, I'm so confident. And it's it's confrontational. Right. I think that that, you know, like, for whoever was kind of like the main voices of the art world, that that might have made certain people feel uncomfortable, maybe not in a way that they could articulate, but in the way Mm. they wanted to disempower by taking it a little bit less seriously. Mm. Interesting. I had one final question for Lissa. And what do you think the likelihood is that one day we'll see a Leonor Finney museum somewhere in the world? I, you know, like, it's interesting. There are some artists who have their own museums, and I don't necessarily know if that's, like, the best thing for an artist, like, to have Mm. a museum devoted to them. Sure. Um, I think that just being a part of permanent exhibits, so, like, You know, there are these topical shows that she's included in, but I, you know, like the Tate has a beautiful piece that's on permanent view, but just like in a museum that has like a rotating overview of art history, Mm. I want to see her there. I want to see her at OMA. I want to see her there at the Whitney. I want to see her there at comparable museums, like internationally, in like the permanent art history display, showing her in context. Right. I think it would be a really great development to kind of have that. Yeah, yeah, showing her shoulder to shoulder with her contemporaries like she was. Yeah, yeah, and and strong pieces too, you know. Mm Mm-hmm, yeah. Lissa was incredibly generous with her time, and I learned a great deal about her experiences both as a curator and a champion of Finney's work. And I've included a link to her photography work in the episode description. After a wonderful 50-minute conversation, We parted ways for the evening. Uh, But this was incredibly insightful, and I really enjoyed hearing your perspective on all of these things, and obviously your experience and your views as an artist are are even more valuable as far as just seeing her in the the context of art history and your own interest in her work. So it's been a great conversation, and uh, I really appreciate your time. Okay, thank you, and thanks for doing the work to get, you know, word out about Leonor. That's great. Yeah, yeah, she... She needs to be known. Yeah. More and more. 
more and more her story needs to be told and her, her work should be out there for the potential to be appreciated, for sure. All right. Well, thank you. Yeah, thanks so much, Lissa, and we'll keep in touch, and thank you again. I appreciate it. Okay, thanks. Bye. Have a great night. You too. Over the course of the next few days, I reflected on everything Lissa had shared with me, everything which I had read about Feeney in Peter Webb's extensive biography, everything I could find about her in passing anecdotes in the books of other people who were her contemporaries. But something still nagged at me. I heard it said that Leonor Finney had completed over 1,100 oil paintings. How is that possible? Where are all these paintings? A thorough search online turns up at maximum a few hundred. Add to that, there isn't a dedicated place online which has collected them all together for full appreciation. To add insult to injury, at the time of this writing, her Wikipedia page is only a few paragraphs long and only contains one photograph of her, not even a single painting. You head over to Vincent van Gogh's Wikipedia and it has all 900 paintings in full color and resolution. Although to be fair, I tried the French Wikipedia, which is www.fr.wikipedia.org, and searching for Finney there turns up very lengthy lists of her many exhibitions, group shows, mentions of which museums currently hold her works, reviews from critics of her time, and an extensive list of credits for her stage and costume design work. But still, no place online to appreciate her 1,100 oil paintings. So I did a little more digging and found a rare book which was released as recently as 2019, which is the only book that catalogs all of her oil paintings and includes photographs of each. Eureka! It is called Leonore Fini, Catalogue Raisonné of the Oil Paintings, and it was edited and compiled by Richard Overstreet, Neil Zuckerman, and Peter Webb. So I did what any good journalist in a detective movie would do, and I took a trip to New York City's most majestic old library, the Schwartzman Building. This was, coincidentally, the only place in New York where I could view this book for myself. The Schwartzman Building of the New York Public Library is an enormous structure, even by modern standards. Its vast front steps are flanked by two world-famous lions, which have made more cameos in films and television than most A-list actors. Fun fact, the Schwartzman Building is the library featured in the opening scene of the first Ghostbusters movie. Such a classic flick. But I'm not here today for ghost hunting. I'm here to finally find out did Leonor Fini really complete over 1,100 oil paintings? The interior of the Schwartzman building is even more magnificent than its exterior. It's filled with towering archways, vaulted ceilings, Corinthian columns, floor-to-ceiling windows, and glistening stone walls. This building is a jewel in the crown of New York City's cultural treasures, and I find myself regretting I've only ever been here for a class trip in elementary school. I probably dreaded it then. I'm loving every second of it now. It feels like the Library of Alexandria. You know, there was a point in time when Finney was seriously considering moving to the United States. 
She even mentioned it to her friends. Her fellow surrealists, such as Salvador Dali, Max Ernst, and Leonora Carrington, had already made the move and were living in New York City. It would have been very possible for her, as she would have had their help, and undoubtedly would have helped her career. But ultimately, she chose to stay in Paris to help her mother, Malvinia, who was in her 70s by that point, and whom Finney did not want to abandon for the sake of career ambitions in the States. So she chose to stay in Paris and care for her mother. They lived within walking distance from each other for the rest of her days. You know, it's not fair to compare the personal lives of artists. Everyone has different scenarios and relationships, but I can't help think of Salvador Dali, who effectively abandoned his closest family and cut off all ties from his aging father in pursuit of international fame. The book I'm here to visit is in the Art and Architecture Collections Room, which is tucked away in a private area of the third floor, a room behind a riveted leather door that is somehow even quieter than the others. Hello, how are you? I have a volume on reserve I called in yesterday. So you can go ahead and have a seat at table five, 35, my 35, great, thank you. I sit down at my reserved seat and await the librarian. A minute later, she brings me the two-volume book. Oh, thank you so much. You're and is there a time limit on viewing or anything? Oh, no, you're good for the day. And okay. um, if you want to keep them beyond today, we can put them on hold for two weeks. Amazing, thank you. Okay. Appreciate it. Leonore Finney, catalogue raisonné of the oil paintings. I take a deep breath and get to work. Page after page. I see paintings I've never seen before, many as color photographs, and still others as only old black and white photos, their current fate and location uncertain, existing somewhere under tarps in private collections, gathering dust. Countless portraits, strange still lifes, and dark, imaginative scenes. The rumors were true. Over 1,100 oil paintings, my head fills with the magnitude of it all. And I think to myself, can you be a genius if society doesn't recognize you? I've always believed that genius is a label we give to someone as a way of saying, you have contributed to humanity in a meaningful way, a way which, in the absence of your work, would leave a significant void. Discovering Feeney's work is like discovering a key to an inner door you didn't realize could open. The book of Leonore Fini is only just now opening to us. Will Leonore Fini finally be recognized and considered one of the greatest artists of the 20th century? That's not the responsibility of the people of her time anymore. Now, it's ours.
I hope you enjoyed Codex 31, Leonor Finney, The Dark Masquerade. It's been quite a journey. One of my goals with this series, from the start, was to try and understand who Leonor Finney was as a human being, and who she was as an artist in the context of the 20th century. I hope I did justice to her story and her artwork, and in some way, however small, even introduced her to a new audience. I'd like to extend a big thank you to Lissa Rivera for taking a chance on me, sharing her story, and giving the time to be interviewed for this episode. It was really so valuable to get a modern perspective of Leonor Finney from someone who knows her work in the intimate way that she does. I've included links to Lissa's social media and her website in the episode details, where you can also appreciate her creative work as a photographer. I'd like to also extend a huge special thank you to Emily Simone, my lead violinist over the course of these two Finney episodes. She provided a moving counterpart to Leonor Finney throughout. Links to Emily's work are also included in the episode details. But most of all, and I really mean this, I'd like to thank the listeners and supporters of Creative Codex, the people who share the show, the people who reach out to me in emails and on social media, and the people who support the show through donations or on my Patreon. What's crazy is that these two episodes are only as good as they are because of you. Your support has improved Creative Codex in a measurable way, and that is an amazing thing. On that note, shoutouts are in order to my Patreon supporters. First, sending a big hug to my Dreammaker tier, executive producer Mike Hill. Thank you. You're a game changer. Sending big thank yous to my Karma Coma supporters, Adana, Blake Bobbitt, Brian Drury, Christelle82, Cryptic Hubris, Dan Sorrells, Dina Sun, Don Frias, Isaac Abizade, Josh Smith, Julio Chavez, Chris with a K, Marav Seren, Misha, Michael Thompson, Miss Alex Kennedy, Mona Oman, Russ Jones, Sam McCohey, and Sarah J. It's an honor to have your support. Thank you so much. Next, shout outs to my Shadow Fan Plus crew Aaron Knight, Ben, Thurn ben Thurnhofer, Blake Huggins, Brittany Miller, Cerise Walker, Daniel Vida, Donna Toms Jones, Frank Warren, Fred, Grain of Sand, Hannah Helton, Helena DeMarzio, James S.Z., Jane Van Elk, Jeremy, Joe Russell, John Bergmans, John Harrington, Karina, Casey Vandenberg, Ken Goodyear, Lane Zong, Libby Hawker, Logan Kshivitsky, Louise Benton, Lyle Vincent, Maddie Lane, Maria, Marissa, Matt Perra, Matt Seibert, Michael Gaffrey, Michael Pisano, Nicole Locilento, Nicole Wessel, Nicole Chen, Rebecca Redding, Ryan Huff, Sean Matthew Howard, Steve Struhar, Tyler McKenzie, and of course, Zuko's World. Thank you so much, guys. I couldn't do this without you. And the thank yous for you fine Shadow Fam folks are written in the episode description. I appreciate you. Next up, I'm going to finish the final part of the Kurt Cobain series, which is only available on my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash MJ Dorian. And shortly after that, for the next episode, 
I have a few select creative geniuses that are already floating up to the top of that very long list. If you want to stay abreast of those developments, be sure to follow me on social media, either Instagram or Twitter, at MJDorian. That's M-J-D-O-R-I-A-N. This has been Creative Codex. I am your host, MJ Dorian. Until next time, we'll let Leonor Finney have the last word. This quote comes from an interview she did with the author, Nina Winter. Paintings, like dreams, have a life of their own, and I have always painted very much the way I dream. The images appear before you. You cannot say from where they come, and you usually cannot even say what they mean. The images say something to you, and that is why you paint. In my imagination, as in everyone's, there are elements of fear and horror, but also of playfulness and humor. These ingredients do not exist as separate entities, but interweave and balance each other. I never know exactly what speaks to people when they like my paintings, but sometimes I think perhaps it is that. Or perhaps it is simply a vitality they find in the paintings which is really their own vitality. It happens to be passing through me when I paint, a kind of life force, but it belongs to all of us.